Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, it says, When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this. The Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, and this is from Zechariah, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna meaning, Oh, save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The question I want to ask you that we'll answer hopefully today is, what do we learn about God on Palm Sunday? What do we learn about God on Palm Sunday? Jesus is the express image of God. No man had seen the Father at any time. Jesus comes and is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. There were all these misconceptions about God, what, what God would do, what God wouldn't do, how God would act. Jesus comes and rather than God explaining things in a document, because he knew a document wouldn't be enough, this word from God takes on flesh and comes to show the world who God is. Now, what God is doing here is comedic irony. This is a joke. So there were two times a year where you could wave palm branches. One time of year when palm branches were common out in the city and folks were waving palm branches was at the Feast of Tabernacles. Those of you who are up on your Jewish history, when is the Feast of Tabernacles? When is the Feast of Tabernacles? It's in the fall. Good job, Jenny. Guess what season we're not in here in Matthew 21? We're not in the fall. We're in the spring. So it couldn't have been the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was only one other time where it wouldn't have been a weird thing for the community to be out waving palm branches. And that time uh, is the word parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Now, a lot of folks have translated the word parousia um, 
as this thing that will happen when Jesus comes back. Okay, we'll get into that maybe later, not today. Um, but what parousia was, was this action where if a king went off to battle and won, the king would return and they would have a parousia as a form of a parade. And in the parade, they would get out palm branches and they would be declaring to the king that the king had saved them from whatever the king had gone off to battle to fight. So this is why we call this the triumphal entry. Not the beginning of the battle, but to triumph means what? That you've already won. So what they're declaring is that somehow Jesus has fulfilled what was prophesied in Zechariah 9, that the king would come and the king would have this donkey and the, the, a colt and he would be riding on these rascals into town. And so imagine the scene. The way this had typically worked is when kings triumphed over another city, over another king, guess what they would use to come back into the city? They would use a vehicle. They didn't have cars back then. So rather than coming in in what we know is like a, a presidential um, motorcade, they would have a similar thing. It would be called chariots, right? And oftentimes in this time, the king would actually be hoisted up in this seat and carried by slaves, right? Um, this is the way the king could show this domination. Well, this king that had been prophesied since the book of Zechariah, at least, is coming in. Now, here's what we also need to know. Jesus has been on foot his entire pilgrimage toward Jerusalem. On foot. He's got a mile to go. And he tells his, his disciples, he said, hey, go get us a vehicle. And when they ask why we need the vehicle, tell them the Lord needs it and they'll give it to you. And it worked. Why is Jesus needing to ride on a donkey or this colt for this last mile? Is his feet wore out? This is a form of theater. Jesus is mocking the powers of the world. He said, here, oh, oh we got to do a king thing. Go get, there's up the road, there's a donkey, a female donkey, uh, and a colt. Get them, I'll ride them into town. Imagine this doofy scene, right? Y'all ever rode a donkey? It doesn't look regal, all right? A baby horse is not going to look regal for a grown man. And here he comes, and they got palm branches waving. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the height. They're saying, oh, save us, King Jesus. And this joker is on he got two vehicles, not a big motorcade. He's mocking the triumph of worldly kings. <laughs> I love it. Because we still want God to be the one riding in the bulletproof black SUV with motorcycles in front, motorcycles in the back, military support in the front, police in the back. That's, that's the God we want. Hey, so I, here's how I go into town. I'll borrow two dinky animals and ride them. Because what I want to do is I want to make a mockery of this stupid form of power that's about to kill me.
actually. The strongest military force in the world I'm about to face in just a minute. And I'm going to conquer them, which is all we're going to talk about next week. I will destroy the power of Rome with my chariot. Up until this time, this was arguably the strongest empire that had ever existed. And this one man comes in and conquers the entire kingdom. And he does so by making a mockery of power. About a century before this, on the Via Appia, there was this revolt, revolt called the Spartacus Revolt. 6,000 slaves were killed as a result of this revolt. And you know how they killed all 6,000 of the slaves? They crucified them. Jesus, knowing what is set before him, decides for some reason that the way he is going to be remembered for the rest of history is alongside joined with slaves. This is how he's going to be remembered for the rest of history. Not as the one who comes in with his crew of folks who can conquer the world because he's a genius and he's a, he's a military strategist and he, he knows how to work the system. He's a, a, a CEO. He knows how to get folks to do what he wants to do. That's not the way he uses his power to transform the world because here's what he's trying to show us. He is truth. And all these other ways of strength are lies. And we don't believe him. Because we still use the ways of strength that killed him. Tim Gorringe said this. He said, Jesus, the one who refused to grab power, received it as a gift. I want to read to you Isaiah chapter 50 because after this we're going to read Philippians chapter 2. Um, Isaiah chapter 50. And we're going to bring this thing very close to home today. So it, it's very safe for us to talk about words like Jews, Romans, cult, Jesus, because those are old words. We can almost think that they are... Uh, Fiction. But I want to show you how this works in our world. Um, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 says, The Lord has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning, he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will, who will declare me guilty? 
All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The, what we're about to read in Philippians chapter 2 is a hymn that the early church wrote in response to these servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 through 55. This is a hymn that they captured what this servant would look like. Now, the question I asked earlier was, what do we learn about God on Palm Sunday? So far, what do you think, if folks would have seen this is Jesus revealing God, what would they have learned about God? That he come lowly. Which is why Ryan has been giving us that song week after week after week because we want, we want a conquering song. And Jesus gave us one. And it's a song called Gentle and Lowly. What do we learn about God on Palm Sunday? He doesn't do things the way the world does. What was expected of a messianic figure? Now, Obviously, that would require some history, but just imagine that you as a people have been oppressed for years and years and years, but in your sacred text, there is a promise that a Messiah would come and would deliver you from the hand of your enemies. What would you expect that Messiah to do? Gather an army. Yeah, exactly. There's already this group, right, called the Zealots of which Simon was one of them, one of Jesus' disciples. Um, you would get these folks together and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, let's do it. But when this boy that Jesus recruits, uh, this zealot, winds up participating in the power of the world, you know what Jesus tells him? He said, um, that's not the way we're doing it, big dog. Because uh, they come to get Jesus out of the garden. And this boy who was of the, the group called the Zealots, who did think that you were supposed to conquer the world through military strength, he jumps up and tries to cut the head off of this person who's trying to arrest Jesus. Jesus rebukes him. He says, whoever lives by the sword will die by it. Then Jesus takes the ear of the man who was nearly beheaded, puts it back on the man and says, be healed. Because this is the power that lasts for eternity. This is real power. You've heard me say a lot. I used to fight a lot as a kid, teenager. Thankfully, I cut that out as an adult. Um, but I used to think that the one who could physically fight was the strong one until I really got introspective and contemplative and realized the only time I fought was when I was scared. Most of the time it was because I was a coward. Because I was unwilling to have an actual conversation. Typically I would fight when I knew a conversation would prove me wrong. So you could just fight so nobody could talk. Because that is the power of the world. Now, 
Jesus comes and he's the one who gives his back to those who strike him, his cheeks to those who pull out his beard, the one who doesn't hide his face from insult and spitting. What we learn from God is that God is vulnerable. And we, if we are living according to our most healthy divine design, must to be vulnerable. Now, this is where it gets scary. This is where I need you to pay attention. The word vulnerable comes from this Latin word, vulnerare, which means to wound. To wound. Now, we know the story that, yes, God does come as someone who's vulnerable, and he does come and he gets wounded. The risk of vulnerability is always that we will be hurt. One of the most harsh statements Jesus ever made was this statement. He said, whoever offends one of these little ones, okay, whoever offends one of these little ones, it would be better for him if a millstone be hung around his neck and he be tossed into the sea. This is the savior of the world. This is the gentle and lowly donkey rider who says, if you offend a little one, he's talking about children and immature Christians, actually, um, if you offend one of these little ones, it'd be better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and you'd be tossed into the sea. This is mafia stuff. All right? Jesus says this, though, because he knows if a child who is the most trustworthy human, when a child comes into the world, here's what a child can do. Trust! That's called crying. Trust! A child has needs, it can't meet them, and the only way it can get the needs met is by communicating vulnerably to somebody who can. And this is how this God has designed humans to, to learn love and relational connection. This is why Jesus is so harsh to say, if you offend one of these little rascals and you make them where they can't trust, you're going to dehumanize them. If you are someone who has gotten to the place where you can't trust, you are missing out on your divine design. And it's probably not your fault. You probably experienced what Jesus was so frustrated about that you gave yourself to somebody, you trusted somebody, and what they did with you in your vulnerability was actually strike you and not assist you, actually deprive you and not gift you. So it's probably not your fault. But now we've built an entire world that functions on this this power system that does not require vulnerability to exist. How many of you prior to coming to this church took your shoes off in someone's house that wasn't your own? Not most of us. Most of us live guarded. Everybody's out to get us, right? Everything's a threat. So the way we live is not vulnerable. The way we live is guarded, protected, walled, secure. This is the response of Adam in the garden. Adam in the garden, naked, unafraid, unashamed, communing with God, naming the animals, uh, experiencing the, the fruit of the garden. First response after sin does what? 
secures. What does sin want us to do? Hide. Cover up. And if it can get us there, it can destroy us. And now we have entire systems built around this, this idea of power. This is why when Jesus comes, this is what he's destroying. He said, y'all think walls and military and chariots are power? Y'all are scared. You're cowards. You're not living. Every one of you are dead with fear. I'm going to show you how to, I'm going to show you how to live. I'm going to actually conquer these principalities and powers that function with this fear of death. And I'm going to do it by just this grand display of irony. If you were standing back and could actually see Jesus as the Messiah and what he was doing and saying to these systems of the world, you would have laughed your stinking head off because it was comedy. He's doing what? He is a joker. He's supposed to come in and knock them out. And he's coming in on this borrowed donkey. Just imagine, like, we're, we're in here hiding out, and we got this hero coming, right? And, and all around us, there's enemies all around us in, in, in the woods, and if we go out, they're going to get us. And we're praying, like, we found out there's this hero that's supposed to come and rescue us, and we see him coming up the road. And we're like, oh, God, he, he is riding a baby horse, and he does not, he doesn't even have a gun. You know what we do in here? I'm going to tell you what we do. That's what we do. Everybody in here that's carrying, they just decide, I'll protect myself with power. And power's coming down the road. Nobody saw it but his mama. She's the only one. She's the only one standing there at the end saying, yep, I knew you was going to do it. That's why I named you Jesus. And we still can't see it. We now understand peace as protection. Uh, we understand our well-being as safety from the other. Everybody's a doggone threat. The, even something that's crept into the church that I wish we'd just burn it out of the dictionaries, this word tribe, freaking stupid word. Now, though, we've got power, especially here in America. We've got power because we got, where's they at? I got some. John gave me some power. Uh oh. Now I got some power. Now I can manipulate people to do what I need done, and it, I don't have to risk myself. If my car will not start, and my neighbor offers to help me replace the starter, I wonder what his help is going to cost me. Not in dollars, but in time, in patience, and some future but not yet conceived payback. I'd rather pay him, because payment is power. 
I would rather have transaction than interaction. At the least, I'll owe my neighbor gratitude. I might grumble when I write a check to a mechanic for a couple hundred dollars, but the nature of the transaction is clear and formal. I don't know you another doggone thing. You don't know me another doggone thing. And the way we protect ourselves is not by our word. We got this thing called litigation over the top of us. It says, you did me wrong. I got my lawyer. Yesterday, had a wedding at Hannah and Kyle's, and the wind was blowing, you know, I don't know, 90 mile an hour, it felt like. There was this limb that, that broke off the tree. This man came up to me and said, you got insurance on this place? He thought I ran the place because I was doing the MC. And I said, um, I'll tell you what. If you get hurt, you just sue me. He was like, because there was a limb, you know, hung up in the tree, and he, he was trying to, you better do something about that limb. What am I going to do? I got on dress shoes, big dog. <laughs> just move. You see it. <laughs> Thank God you saw it. I said, just sue me if anything goes wrong. I'll give him a number. He's like, he moved on. He's, he's on out of the way. Our neighbor's offer is not business-like. It's not self-contained. It's open-ended neighborliness. It's a risky gesture of friendliness between people who are close enough to see each other and to depend on one another every day. That'd suck. If I'd been stranded on the side of the road, I would gladly accept the assistance from a good Samaritan who, after helping me, would drive off never to be seen again. The reason I tell you that is because when we start talking about God displaying himself vulnerably, we want to think about it in this grand scene that is bigger than us and that we don't have a part of, and here we are, the one who says, I'm not asking for help because I ought to be vulnerable. But I'm going to tell you this. If you can't trust, you can't flourish as a human, and you can't trust unless you're vulnerable. And what we've got to see, we've got to begin having eyes to see this system that has dehumanized us, that has told us what power looked like, what protection looked like, looked like what peace looked like. We've got to begin laughing at this junk. I was in a meeting the other day, some folks wanting to start a private school, real wealthy bunch of jokers over in Carrollton. And they wanted to consult me about some junk because they'd heard me uh, talking about a book and so I get to this meeting, and um, first thing I said, because they're all super rich, I said, this ain't going to work if y'all like money. And the lady that hosted the event, she said, I really like money. I said, well, it's not going to work. That was how that conversation went. All right. No, they did. They wound up listening to me for two hours because they thought I was out of my mind. But we've got to begin to see that what really matters this is what I told her. I said, no, you can't eat money and trust money and enjoy uh, the story that money tells you and be comforted, be patted on the back by money. What you really want is a friend. What you really want is a teacher. What you really want is a person. And what you're used to doing is coercing people to doing the junk you want done because you got money and then acting like you don't need folks. Which is a mirage. 
but it's the American dream. Independence is the American dream. That's why we signed a declaration of it. And the most anti-human thing you can be is independent. You try to eat only the groceries you, you cook and raise and only use the power from the energy you generate and only drive on the roads that you've paved and only drive the car that you built and only live in the house that you, uh, that you construct, only sleep on the bed of the mattress that you put together and then say, I'm independent. The problem is what Jesus has always done is expose, say, that is not reality. That's what truth always does. That is not reality. And then when, if we'd accept truth, we would be free. What is the truth? The truth is that the most powerful person that has ever stepped foot in this earth was the one who said, I didn't refuse my back from being struck and I didn't refuse my beard from them pulling my hair out. We need new heroes. He's the strange king. He would have been a comedian if he had been. He'd had a Netflix special. Jesus would have. He's the strange king who conquers by means of suffering and apparent defeat, and whose power, greater than any other on earth, seems to be trampled under the power of religious and political authorities. Seems to be. Now I want you to read this in Philippians, and we'll be done. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, it said, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let's stop right there. What they're about to tell us is what Jesus had as his paradigm. That's what, it, if we're going to have the mind of Jesus, what it's about to give us is the paradigmatic lens of the one who knew what power was. He was in the form of God. But he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being bound in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's where it gets good. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There were a few kings who came in riding on the shoulders of their slaves. And you know who, who they were higher than? They were elevated higher than the four slaves that they had coerced to hold them. But there's a king who comes 
who takes on the form of the slave, who gets lower than anyone has ever gone to the service of humanity and reveals that, no, 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 humility is not the road to exaltation. This is not, do this for a season and then you'll get exalted. This is the most powerful posture. Who is free? We're all slaves to somebody. Who's free? Jesus, free is the one who realizes our only choice is slavery. So I'm going to choose to serve. The free one is the one who chooses to serve. And now, forever, is now the one above the highest heaven where every knee in, in the heaven, in earth, and under the earth is now bowing to celebrate and worship. But what'd he do? He served. He was vulnerable. And that's power. Even on the night he was betrayed, which we're about to celebrate, they're about to have the Passover meal. And he says, I need a towel. Now, most of the time at these get-togethers, the, the king would have been seated at the head of the table and would have been serving. They're about to have this feast, this feast of Passover, and the king, the real king, gets up from his seat and goes and takes the form of the slave and begins washing the feet, not only of his disciples, but of the one he knows is about to betray him to death. If you could see it from an outside perspective, you would be laughing. Because he just keeps taking what we know of power and just slapping it all over the place. He said, y'all want the king who's over here being served? You know where I am? I'm the waiter. I'm the waiter. I'm not even at the table. 